This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Dr. Jeffrey Thompson. Dr. Jeff, as I call Dr. Jeffrey Thompson, began experimenting with sound and its effect on the body and brain in 1981 at his Holistic Health Center in Virginia. His experiments involved using exact sound frequencies to make chiropractic spinal and cranial adjustments to stimulate and normalize organ function and to balance acupuncture meridians. His clinical research has led to groundbreaking discoveries in how sound frequency patterns built into musical soundtracks can entrain brainwaves and trigger numerous health benefits. He has created dozens of audio programs designed to create specific changes in brainwave patterns, including one of the most popular programs Sounds True has ever distributed, Brainwave Suite, as well as the Alpha Relaxation System and the Delta Sleep System, where he offers his breakthrough audio techniques that are proven to increase levels of Delta Brainwave activity, which has helped thousands of people to achieve regular, restful, revitalizing sleep. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Dr. Jeff and I spoke about the science behind brainwave entrainment. We also talked about the discovery of the gamma brain state and how it relates to meditation. Finally, we talked about what he calls primordial sounds and how he layers these sounds into the recordings that he creates. Here's my very intriguing conversation with Dr. Jeff. To begin with, Dr. Jeff, I'd love to know more about your background in sound and healing. And specifically, I read that you started in this field working with people chiropractically and using sound to help resolve problems that someone would normally bring to a chiropractor. Well, you know, I I started out as a musician I've been playing music and composing my own music since I was 12. I play guitar and keyboards. And, um, and then I, uh, after I graduated from high school, I went, to, I went to college. I went to art school, so I thought I was supposed to be an artist. And I actually have a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree. And went out in the world and had a couple of businesses in uh, 1977, 
I went back to school when I was 29. I went to chiropractic school at the urging of one of my best friends who said, you've got to come out and see what these guys are doing. So I went out to Davenport, Iowa, and uh, saw what was going on and got very interested. My, it was kind of interesting. I never really went to chiropractic school to become a chiropractor. I went kind of as part of a spiritual journey because the uh, the the physical body is kind of a textbook of universal law according to esoteric texts and so i thought that by <clears throat> learning the nth degree of information that we know about the body anatomically physiologically that i would learn i would see that i would see the correlations and i certainly was not disappointed you know, I'd never had a chiropractic adjustment when I went to chiropractic school. <laughs> that was kind of strange. But out the other end, you know, you go through these four years of intense study. I realized quickly that the only way that I could memorize all the muscles and all the attachments and all the bones and all the joints and all the cells and the intricacies of the brain and the wiring diagrams of the brain and neurophysiology was to draw it. So if I drew the muscles and drew the bones and drew the brain and drew the connections and labeled them and shaded them and activated my artist half, then by the time I finished drawing it, it was in my brain. So I'm making straight A's in the most difficult subjects, you know, CNS, central nervous system, peripheral nervous system, wiring diagrams of the brain, because I'd drawn them and I had it burned into my mind. And then fellow students saw these drawings and and said, oh, those are, those are cool. Can I have a copy of that? So pretty soon, two plus two equaled four, and I was published them, publishing these study guides, these drawing study guides for different classes. And so I was putting myself through school as a medical illustrator. You never kind of know what's going to happen. So that was where my art training paid off. And when I graduated, I got out into practice. I was uh, working as an associate in the largest holistic health center in Virginia a very fertile ground with pretty much every holistic technique under one roof. We were one of the first clinics in the country to have laser acupuncture. We had a whole suite for colon therapy. We had a giant section for biomagnetic therapy using magnet fields, magnetic fields to influence organ function, energy fields, uh, blood lab for doing nutritional studies, all kinds of stuff interesting stuff. And um, I realized that I was making enough money now to do something I always had wanted to do, which was make an album of my music as a composer. And I was kind of, you know, expecting, I was going to make, you know, a couple hundred tapes, because this is before CDs were invented. Um, Make a couple hundred tapes and maybe give them away for Christmas presents for the next 10 years. (laughs) Um, I produced the tape, and uh, within a month, they were taken up by all the New Age music distributors, 15. 
music distributors, and it was a hit. Uh, it was adopted by the uh, National Hypnotherapy Association as one of the first tapes for brain entrainment for hypnosis. That was my first um, album. That was Isle of Sky. That was 1986. <laughs> so it was kind of like the universe said yes to me. And it was like, wow, I stuck this out there, and the universe said yes to me. Uh, so that was that was significant. In order to produce this album, I had to buy, you know, I had to take a leap, and I had to spend a lot of money on uh, electronic keyboards. I bought the most sophisticated one on the market at the time. That was a Yamaha DX7 <clears throat> digital synthesis. You could make your own sounds out of thin air. So I started intensely designing my own fantasy instrument sounds. And... Uh, bought a modest recording studio, outfitted myself with professional reel-to-reel recorders and mixing boards. And um, Before I even started composing, I found myself experimenting on my wife, who had a low back problem, and it occurred to me that um, I was wondering if I could adjust, make a chiropractic adjustment of her fifth lumbar using a precisely tuned sound wave kind of on the wine glass principle the vertebra is a, is a very is a specific shape density and mass so you should be able to resonate specifically with a certain sound wave like a wine glass and i set that experiment up and gave it a try and it worked and that was a revelation for me that was it's one of those moments in my life that a shift happened, a huge shift, because that started me down the road of a scientific kind of exploration of highly specifically tuned sound waves and their ability to resonate different body tissues. Now, Dr. Jeff, let me ask you a question. How did you know what type of sound to make with your instruments that would resonate with your wife's lower lumbar problem? And how did you figure that out? Good question. Excellent question. Um, I was, um, I studied all of the exotic healing techniques when I was in school. Um, I I got certified in various types of uh, cranial sacral therapy, in energy field work, in polarity therapy, uh, biomagnetic therapy, things like that. Um, also, I got uh, certified in kinesiology, muscle testing, the you know advanced forms of that, the medical forms of that. Um, and so I was doing a lot of muscle testing in my clinic. <clears throat> and the, the muscle testing idea, by the way, is uh, based on a stress response. Here's the big idea. The There's a biological intelligence that knows how to grow my body out of two cells and differentiate all those tissues into what they are now and then make them all work and function on automatic without me thinking about it. And who it is that's me thinking about it, who identify myself as being, is really not me at all. It's a tool that I use, like a hand. My personality is a tool that I need 
for social interaction, for conversations with you, filling out tax forms, writing checks, driving a car, talking to people, doing things. But it's a tool that I use. It's not me. I consider me to be something larger, something before a thought, something that knows how to grow and maintain the system. And I think that uh, mystical experiences from people, including myself, have that as an experience. The experience is who you think you are drops away, and you come to a deeper region, a region that's connected to everything, a kind of a organizing intelligence that knows how to grow a body or a planetary ecosystem. Anyway, that that system, this biological intelligent mind, is also the internal physician program. It has tabs on everything that's going on inside my body. It knows precisely which things are out of balance and how much and which things need to be worked on in which order. A priority list that only it knows. Not me on the outside here with my thinking mind. Don't have a clue. (coughs) So uh, you can use this muscle testing idea to tap into that system and get a readout of what it knows through a stress response that you can monitor in the body. So here's how that works. If I go to, uh, you know, my my wife says that she's got this low back problem. It hurts. So I go and start touching various areas of her low back until I find a tender spot. Then I also can feel with my fingers. I can feel the alignment of the spine, and it feels like, say, the fifth lumbar is rotated around over to the right, which means that the right facet joint is pinched and hurting, and the muscles get tight to uh, lock it down and immobilize it so it can't go out any further. So we've got two sources of pain. And if I start to push on that vertebra in various directions, at the moment that I push the vertebra in the direction that it's out, so to speak, I just made a bad situation worse. If I push it to the right, the right compressed joint gets more compressed and new signals fire to the brain. And the brain has an immediate alarm response to this that, whoa, a bad situation just got worse here. So all the alarms go off and the system gears itself to defend its life just in case. Uh, Because one of the primary programs in the system is survival. Rule number one, survive. Rule number two, do no self-harm. So basically all my five senses are stuck out into the world monitoring input to see if my life is being threatened. And neural input coming into the brain is evaluated. Is this good? Is this um, neutral? Is this bad? And if it's bad... Even to the slightest degree, uh, the system will have a full-blown alarm response uh, to protect its life just to be in the safe side. You know, better to have a full-blown alarm response when it wasn't needed than to not have a response and die. So 
you can take advantage of that. If I push on the fifth lumbar and make a bad situation worse, the system has a full-blown alarm response. And part of the alarm response is all the attention of the system goes to the back. And the muscle that I was testing that was strong loses its strength because attention has been diverted. It's more important to find out what's happening at the L5 than it is to keep the deltoid muscle strong. So a previous ability for the muscle to lock and be strong is lost, and it feels spongy and weak. So here's here's the answer to your question, where she's laying there on the table, and I'm pushing on the vertebra in different directions, and each time I push, I test the strength of one of her muscles, and I use the same muscle each time. So I push on the vertebra this way, and nothing happens. I push it that way, nothing happens. I push it this way, and the muscle gets weak. That's confirmation for me that I've initiated a stress response. And the nervous system is now paying attention to the spine and not the muscle. So now I'm in a perfect position to find out what can I use to neutralize the body's stress response while I'm also stressing it out. Because the only thing that will neutralize the stress response is to give the body what it needs to fix it at the same time. The two cancel each other out. So now with my keyboard, these uh, digital keyboards are pretty cool. They're great scientific tone generators. You have uh, specific um, oscillators that can be tuned. I can tune between C and C sharp by 100 steps with a digital readout. So I can get accurate to a few decimal points of sound frequencies. So, you know, for instance, um, you know, let's say that I start, uh, I push on the vertebra, get a weak muscle, and play a tone, C. Nothing happens. C sharp, nothing happens. Uh, D, nothing happens. D sharp, and the muscle's feeling a little stronger. Um, E, stronger still. F, weaker. Back to E, it's stronger. And then I start adding micro-tunings. Let's, let's do E plus 10 cents, 10 divisions of sharp out of 100. Add 20, add 30. And each time you do that, the muscle's getting stronger until finally it's 100% strong. Add, you know, D plus 33. That's the strongest muscle response I get. So now, even though I'm stressing the vertebra out by playing this tone of D plus 33, the stress response is neutralized. That means that I've found the frequency for that vertebra. And now if I play that sound frequency into the vertebra, it resonates the vertebra like a wine glass, and now it's floating in a state of resonance and it's separated from the vertebra above and below through resonance. It's in the state of motion. And that's what unlocks the joint. Now, Dr. Jeff, when you say like a wine glass, can you tell me what you mean by that? When the opera singer sings a, uh, the note for the wine glass, and the wine glass starts to vibrate. You know, Ella Fitzgerald, and she sings it loud enough, and the wine glass shatters. Um, the scientific phenomenon of that is uh, called the science of coupled oscillators. 
it's really the underpinnings for this whole idea of physical resonance with sound and eventually brainwave entrainment, which we'll talk about here too. So there's a, uh, actually for anyone out there who wants to look this up, there was an excellent definitive article on this um, science in Scientific American. That was October 1993 called um, uh, Coupled Oscillators and Biological Synchronization. And in that article, uh, you know, the whole thing started with, uh, in 1665, with this guy named Christian Hergens. He was a scientist living in Europe. And he uh, entered into a contest in Europe to make the most accurate timepiece in the world for uh, shipping, for navigating ships. You know, a ship has to sail out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean, and um, it has to sail for 10 hours, 23 minutes, and 16 seconds, and then make a 45-degree turn to the left and travel for 2 hours, 15 minutes, and then make a 35-degree turn to the right. And if those times are off by a fraction of a second, you're 100 miles off course and you die. So he won that contest, and he won it by inventing the pendulum clock. And his pendulum clocks were not just any old clock on a wall. It was this highly super scientific uh, instrument. And then he got sick, and he's laying in bed, and he's watching these two identical pendulum clocks on the wall. And their pendulums are in perfect synchronicity with each other, which doesn't make sense because these clocks are not mechanically connected together in any way. There's no explanation for why they would not go out of sync eventually. So he took one off the wall, put it on another wall, and as soon as they were on different walls, they went into an asynchronous mode like you would expect. Put them back on the same wall, and in 20 minutes they're back in sync and they never go out of sync. And that was the raw beginnings of this whole science that developed called the science of coupled oscillators. And actually the secret to it was the vibration of the gears and the mechanisms of the two clocks were using the wall as a sounding board to transmit the vibrations, communicate with each other. And that kicks in this universal principle of coupled oscillators that governs everything. It governs the resonance of subatomic particles to the formation of the supergalactic nebula. And it's why my heart cells beat when they touch and why fish swim in schools and birds in flocks and people congregate together. It's why brain waves fire in waves in synchronicity. Neurons in the brain fire in synchronicity waves. That's why they're called brain waves. Sweeps of depolarization across the cortex in waves. All based on this idea that everything in the universe dances together to the same drummer. But no one's beating the drum except everyone. Kind of a Zen thing. It's it's a consensus dance to save energy. 
it saves energy to dance to a drumbeat that's already beating than to invent your own separate and distinct drumbeat all on your own. And because the universe is an ecological universe, it's always searching for paths of least resistance to save energy. So you can use this idea to entrain brainwaves and affect brain function as states of consciousness, as we'll uh, discover. Uh, in this case, it's the reason why the wine glass vibrates when you sing the right note. So if I have a wine glass in front of me and I uh, look at this wine glass, the question arises, how do I know which note to sing? You know, <laughs> what, what, what note am I going to sing? How do I know which one to sing? I've got a wine glass right here. So, Can you break it live on the air like this, Dr. Jeff? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not an opera singer. I could do it with my equipment. Um, but how you tell what note to sing is by pinging the glass here. Could you hear that? I could, yeah, perfectly. So I ping the glass with my finger, and I hear this note. That's the fundamental resonant frequency of the atomic structure of this glass in this shape, density, and mass. It, the, the glass that I'm looking at, this wine glass I'm looking at, the shape of it, is a unique event in the universe. No other glass coming out even the same mold is going to have exactly the same frequency. Its shape, density, and mass is ever so slightly changed, but it represents a standing wave of vibrational fields in an atomic structure that looks like this shape. And it has a resonant frequency that holds it together. And so if I pitch my voice at that same frequency and send those sound waves into the glass and it impacts the glass and the glass bends and torques in sympathetic resonance as a, we form a coupled oscillator pair where the vibrating um, frequencies of my vocal cords push airwaves that impact the glass and it responds by forming a moving back and forth coupled pair to my vocal cords. And then if my vocal cords amp up the volume, if I get it louder and louder and louder, the glass responds, and it bends and torques and resonates bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually, if I can overpower it with the volume of my voice, that's why you need a, you know, an opera singer, <clears throat> uh, you can raise the resonant field of this wine glass to a point where it can't contain its own energy anymore, and then it explodes. And that's the shattering of the wine glass. <clears throat> so if you think about this, from a standpoint of therapy, if the wine glass is your fifth lumbar and you have an instrument that can precisely tune to the frequency of the vertebra, you can put the vertebra into a resonant field state of vibration. And if you raise the volume, you can resonate it to a point where it's floating in relation to the stuck joint of the bone above and below and disengage it. So the adjustment, chiropractic adjustment, is made with sound waves. Never touch a person. Um, on the other hand, let's say that we have a tumor, inoperable tumor in your brain. Why can't we shatter the wine glass therapeutically? And that's pretty much what they're doing with ultrasound with kidney stones and gallbladder stones and things like that. 
Now, in terms of how this has informed your work with brainwave entrainment, because there's a lot of things I'd like to talk to you about, I think that many people are familiar with the idea that there are beta, alpha, theta, delta states, brainwave states. Help me understand from your work how the recordings you make entrain us to these states and what the benefit of this is. Yes. Well, okay, so let's take the this coupled oscillator idea and extend it out. Um, my physical body times itself to pulses in the world around me. And there's light pulses and electromagnetic field pulses and sound pulses and all kinds of different things out there that I'm dancing to. Uh, light pulses, day length, moon phase, you know, human, human female menstrual cycle is uh, time to a full moon, new moon phase of 28 and a half days. So ovulation cycle happens in phase with that. Um, that was a big successful part of my practice, women, women's problems and children. And of the women, um, who uh, you know, about more than half were coming with menstrual problems. And the ones who had irregular menstrual cycles, I could uh, fix about 40% of them by having them uh, use a very low uh, watt light bulb, a lot light source in their bedroom during the two weeks of the new moon, fooling the pineal gland that sets the body clocks into thinking the full moon was still shining through the window and resetting the ovulation uh, cycle back in phase relationship to the moon. Then all the problems go, went away. Same thing with seasonal affective disorder, where the pineal gland is no longer in step with the length of the day and the seasons, so your body thermostat is set to the wrong season. That causes all kinds of problems. And that can be reset by exposure every day to an hour of full-spectrum daylight bulb, resetting the clock. So it's kind of with that background that I had a working knowledge clinically of um, of a rudimentary form of entrainment. That's a form of entrainment. Um, so with sound waves, since brain waves um, are this unique kind of uh, relationship between the speed of the firing of the neurons in the brain and states of consciousness, if you can control the speed of the firing of the brain waves, you can control consciousness, or at least you can nudge it in a different direction. And it's kind of like, um, you know, there's, uh, like I said, there's these neurons in the brain, 300 uh, billion neurons and 3 trillion connections, axon connections, and the neurons are like little computers and they're all wired together, forming a, an array, so it acts like a giant computer. They all communicate to each other, and they communicate in various forms of synchronicity. So we have these, when I went to school, we learned that there was four brain states. Now it's expanded beyond that, but the brain states were beta, alpha, theta, delta, and 
Each is associated with a state of consciousness and different speeds of this wave depolarization where the sweeps of electrical discharge sweep across the cortex and a wave, and it's a certain number of waves per second. So um, if I'm in a externally focused beta state, the depolarization wave speed is somewhere between 13 and 35 times per second, or hertz. And that's a certain state of consciousness. And if the frequencies slow down and go below 13, and I enter into an alpha phase, that's a different state of consciousness, and there's a different kind of waveform that shows up. So it's really a different neural program that turns on. And what turns it on, in my opinion, is the brainwave frequency itself, that there are key individualized brainwave frequencies that are accurate to a couple of decimal points that the brain has cued as initiation frequencies for starting a new program, starting a beta program or an alpha program or a theta program. Some of these are tied in sleep to uh, healing regimens, physical recuperation at night during sleep, emotional recuperation, mental recuperation, alpha, theta, delta sleep modes. What turns each one on is when the brain waves slow down and hit a target brain frequency, it initiates the next program. And with that in mind, using brain entrainment with sound, we can pick the lock of those programs and make them run. Uh, and it goes beyond that. We can pick the locks of neural programs my brain uses to unlock my long-term memory storehouse for learning or where my brain goes when I tap my own creativity or where does my brain go you know in a in, my, in a state of enlightenment or a state of um, spiritual revelry or mystical experience or where does my brain go when I'm in the flow as an athlete all these different kinds of states that we can go to have a signature brainwave pattern that go with them. And if we have a tool that can resonate these brainwaves and cause them to go to a place of choice, we have a powerful tool for um, taking control of our lives and then exercising that. Are these brain states actual separate states, they don't coexist at the same time? I mean, could I be in a theta and delta state at the same time, or are they just separate? Oh, yes. Yeah, the brain does multitasking quite well. So let's say that I'm driving my car. Well, first of all, let's, you know, the, the brain, what it does best is save energy, and how it saves energy is by habitualizing tasks that we do more than once, actually do more than twice, three times as a pattern. So... I call that body mudras, a physical body position that is recognized by the nervous system to unlock a program. So if I uh, brush my teeth and get in bed and turn the light out, I'm laying horizontal with covers on, my brain is going, hey, this is the sleep program, and it initiates it. But if I sit and cross my legs and erect my spine, that's the meditation program. If I put one foot in front of the other a few steps, then that's the walking program. I don't think about it anymore. It's automated. 
I get in my car and I start driving. That's the driving program. So now I'm initiated the driving program. And while I'm doing that, I'm listening to the radio, having a conversation with somebody, thinking about yesterday, visualizing the person I'm going to talk to and still take the right exit. So all this stuff is happening at the same time. It's compartmentalized. It's holographic. It's it's difficult to explain neurophysiologically. But when we hook people up to sophisticated brain monitors, we can see all this activity going on simultaneously. Um, in addition, this idea that there's a uh, that we're going to entrain you to an alpha state or a theta state or whatever, um, it's really not exactly correct because the brain has all of the brain states going at the same time. They're just in a different amplitude relationship to each other. So when we talk about a person being in an alpha state, a mid-range alpha state, on EEG what we're seeing is a maximum amplitude of that particular alpha brain frequency, but lesser amplitudes of other alpha frequencies and theta frequencies and delta frequencies going on at the same time. So it's really this pattern that's where it's at. But you can pick a pattern by initiating a brain entrainment frequency that's single. So, for example, when I listen to your alpha relaxation system, I'm emphasizing the alpha state, but all of the brainwave states are present, but I'm emphasizing the alpha state to come into prominence. Would that be accurate? Correct. Correct. We're we're using a scientific approach to stack the deck in our favor for you to initiate a certain configuration of how your brain is functioning and a certain state of consciousness that goes with it. So that would be exemplified by a dominant alpha region of highest amplitude and less dominant other regions, and some of them very, very undominant. Beta would be extremely small, maybe unmeasurable. It depends. But, you know, it's it's certain that you can listen to that particular track you're talking about and um, fall into a revelry where you're visualizing, and that means you've got theta function going. You know, anything that has to do with visualizing or watching a little movie in your mind, that's theta function. Alpha function is pondering. That's... You know, beta is looking at the tree and alpha is looking at the forest out of peripheral vision. So it's more of a pondering mode of the mind, which can slip into picking out a detail and examining it. And so that means that there's a small beta function entering in, or I can have a feeling about that and it extends out into a, um, a memory movie or an anticipation movie of the future, and that's a, a theta function. So the brain is plastic and shifting and moving these things around all the time, but there's a dominance at any given moment, and particularly a dominance over time. You analyze these brain pattern readouts over a 30-minute session, and you can see the you know 95% of the time was spent in this particular range of alpha. And as a composer... When I create a soundtrack for a certain brain state, 
there are a number of different elements going on aside from the brain entrainment aspect. Brain entrainment is just one part of what's going on in these soundtracks. If I want to produce a theta soundtrack, the music had better be theta music, the kind of music that would put you into that state all by itself. You know, it'd have to be mystical, dreamy. That's what a theta state is. It's a dream state. So it's it's the language of metaphors and the unconscious mind, and that has a certain type of quality to the type of music you would expect to be there. So if you create that kind of music, it will put you there by itself. Uh, then there's um, this idea of primordial sounds, which we haven't talked about yet, but we will. Um, sounds that can activate areas of the unconscious mind through pattern recognition that puts that tweaks a certain um, emotional state, a certain state of consciousness. Then there's, you know, at least six different ways of entraining the brain using sound pulses. One of those methods is called binaural beats, using two tones interacting that create a pulse that drives the brain waves. And that's the one that can lead to synchronicity of the right-left hemispheres if you're using headphones. Um, getting a, ahead of ourselves a little bit here, but but the but a given soundtrack is complex. Most of them are about 30 tracks deep. There's 30 tracks of different kinds of sounds going on. Many of them you can't even recognize because they've been altered and slowed. Um, I did. I, I hung out with this guy Richard Bandler. He was one of the two. Uh, fellows who develop neuro-linguistic programming. There was Grindler and Bandler, and Grindler is who you would expect. He looks like a psycho psychotherapist. Bandler looks like a hell's angel. <laughs> he's a madman, but he's a genius. And he, he um, through some of the contact with him, I was back with patients identifying key belief systems that were sabotaging my life. And after seeing, you know, hundreds, thousands of people, after a while they start to categorize, you know, to, down to three basic ones. Um, one has to do with love in my life. One has to do with health. And one has to do with abundance money. And how we deal with each of those elements sets the character of our life. And we and you know most of us have some kind of a are harboring some kind of negative belief system down in there that we're afraid to mention. Like, and and I wanted to get patients to speak it out, say it out loud. You know, no matter what I do, how much money I spend, how many doctors I go to, I'm never going to get well. You know, that's scary. <laughs> uh, no matter you know how many bushes I beat or how many jobs I get or what I do, I'll never make it. So we want to get that out and then replace it, rescript the subconscious mind with this positive statement. You know, abundance is my universal birthright. When I walk my path, what I'm here for, things like that. So I have specific uh, soundtracks, custom soundtracks done with, for patients. I do custom soundtracks for patients, and they take a CD home with them. And then after seeing... 
you know, thousands and thousands of patients over all these years, I see bell curve um, studies showing up of which kind of music, which kind of sounds, which kind of brain entrainment frequencies are best for this state of consciousness or that state of consciousness. Um, and then that generates the knowledge for producing a generic set of CDs based on those principles that I am seeing with patient populations over time. And, you know, I hook my patients up to medical monitoring equipment. So in the office, you'll come in and we'll hook you up to something called a real-time heart rate variability monitor. And that takes heart wave information, does different algorithms to it, pops up new screens, which shows frequency bandwidths in your heart. And the frequency bandwidths stand for the functioning of your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, the two main branches of nerves from the brainstem that automatically control all of your body systems without you thinking about it. It's the master control that tells all systems what to do. And if that system is imbalanced, then all the systems it controls have to exhibit some symptom of imbalance because they're only doing what they're told to do from central command. So instead of using specific frequencies for your fifth lumbar or your cervical or your liver or your fifth chakra or this gland or, or that acupuncture meridian or this cranial, um, the imbalance in all those systems I just described is not their fault. They're only doing what they're told to do from central command, a deeper, higher order system. When it has a problem, they have a problem, and they're exhibiting it. So nobody's been able to figure out how to get to central command to fix it there. So everybody is trying to communicate to it through peripheral systems by fixing each system that communicates back to central command so it begins to adopt the new program. But with sound waves, it doesn't matter where the tissue is buried in your body anymore. You can mainline direct to the brainstem with sound waves and tune it directly. And you can watch that you're making the changes that you want to make by monitoring the heart rate variability system that shows you a real-time readout of the functioning of the autonomic nervous system. So that's how I'm finding out what frequencies to use to balance a person's body. It's also how I'm choosing which brainwave frequencies to use because that will identify highly specific brainwave frequency patterns that are accurate to a few decimal points that unlock neural programs in the brain. Alpha programs, theta programs, delta programs. <clears throat> now, Dr. Jeff, one of the things I'm curious about is that you've made recordings not just for alpha, theta, and delta, but also for inducing the gamma state. Can you tell me what that is? Yeah. So, like I said, when I went to school, it was beta, alpha, theta, delta. And in uh, 1989, I think, uh, 1989, I got uh, one of the first um, EEG programs. This was from Holland. It was a brand-new idea, an EEG program that could plug into a personal computer. So it came with a program and an interface for hooking a person 
head up. And then on your regular uh, computer, you could monitor a person with brainwaves. Up to that point, it was a medical piece of equipment that cost $20,000 and LexaCore system and all this stuff that you know, only professionals could afford. This was the first time it was coming into a regular public domain. So I hooked up every patient for two years and watched their brainwaves. And part of it was to reproduce the work of uh, a scientist named Gerald Oster. He's really the one who's, who sparked the entire revolution of brain entrainment uh, with sound waves. He published the definitive article, once again, in our friends, the Scientific American, and this one was in um, December uh, 1974, no, 1973, the December issue, Scientific American, called Auditory Beats in the Brain by Gerald Oster, spelled with a G. And in that, he showed that uh, he hook a person up to an EEG, and you play an external sound pulse that's pulsing at a brainwave speed, and the brainwaves will try to adjust themselves to match that speed and lock onto it like a coupled oscillator. And in doing so, your state of consciousness changes. And probably the earliest use of this technique was shamanic drumming practices from thousands and thousands of years ago. You're pounding a drum at a certain speed. So if you if you have you know ever go or attend or if you have a shamanic drumming uh circle there'll be this drum beat that's going can you hear that yes you know this is about that speed i've measured that speed that drum beat speed is four and a half cycles per second that's a deep theta brain entrainment pulse that means that we're taking a person from a waking state in upper beta, 20, 25 hertz, and having it travel down through alpha into theta and into deep theta to match this 4.5 hertz and put you into a dream state without going to sleep first. That's the key. A person who goes into a shamanic trance state is not asleep, yet they're in a theta state that's normally associated with dreaming sleep. And that's what I talk about when we're talking about different mudras. If I play a um, theta meditation CD set that I made, and you lay down in bed, you're likely to go into this dream state. If you sit and meditate and listen to the same soundtrack, you'll go into a meditation state. Different body mudra is picking a different neural program for the same exact brain frequency, state of consciousness. So there's sleep, there's waking, and there's awakening states of consciousness all associated with exactly the same brain frequency. And depending on how you combine the brain frequencies and the sounds with your intention and your body position, you can unlock different programs for that purpose. Uh, but we're ahead of ourselves. So here's um, Gerald Oster. He's showing that you can create these beats in a different way with binaural beats. He's the one who coined that term. So he's a scientist, so he's using sine waves. 
and sine waves are produced by an electronic oscillator. It's a man-made tone. It has no harmonics. It's a pure tone. Pure tones don't exist in nature. It's a man-made thing. It's the emergency broadcast tone. You know, this tone that's annoying to listen to. But when you play two of them and slightly out of tune, they create this interference pattern that shows up as a pulse. And by tuning them closer or further away from each other, the pulse will speed up or slow down. So you can precisely tune the speed of the pulse. And instead of a drumbeat, you've got a phase-modulated pulse. And that will entrain brainwaves as well. But then he discovered if you put headphones on and you have one tone in one ear and the other tone in the other ear, you cause a synchronicity effect of the electrical activity of the right-left hemispheres across the corpus callosum. You have this unity of right-left hemisphere function. And that is a key thing because hemisphere synchronicity doesn't happen too often with people. It happens in ecstatic state moments. It happens in the moment of a revelry, the moment of personal insight, the moment of a spiritual revelation. Um, it's the big stuff, a moment of a psychic phenomenon. Um, so it's a desirable state. We want that state. And nobody knows how to get it. But now you can pick the lock of that program and make it happen by listening to binaural beat soundtracks with headphones on. Um, since I was kind of, you know, I thought I was inventing this field, novice little me, um, and I was doing it from the standpoint of a composer. I'm making these fantasy instrument sounds. I want to initiate this control of the circadian rhythm body clock, like I've been doing with menstrual cycles and seasonal affective disorder except use sound instead of light so I was building these uh, binaural beat on tonings between the right left uh, speakers into the harmonic structure of the instrument sounds that I was making on my keyboard so I can make this fantasy flute sound and I'm assembling the harmonics to make it and then I can go and I can manipulate those harmonics and untune them and create these binaural beats within the instrument sound itself and not as a separate sine wave. Since Gerald Oster did it with sine waves, then the whole industry of brain entrainment soundtracks on the market out there all have used his work. And everybody uses two sine waves slightly out of tune that create this pulse the pulse isn't all that pleasant to listen to, so you cover it over with music or with um, nature sounds to make it palatable to listen to. And then you have a, series, a genre of people who approach that different ways. You know, if I if I choose as my foundation binaural beat tone um, A440, and the other tone is going to be A445, the pulse I hear is 5 hertz, the difference between those two. And then if I'm going to put music on it, it better be in the key of A. <laughs> you know, Otherwise, I'm going to have a discordant frequency relationship, and that will cause a stress in the nervous system. And like anything else in human enterprise, there are people out there pumping out these tapes who are entrepreneurs who don't know what they're doing, and they're producing it wrong. 
Now, Dr. Jeff, how does all this get us to the gamma state? In uh, gamma, the uh, that was you know, discovered by the Institute of Neuroscience here in San Diego, 1986. Um, gamma is difficult to pick up on an EEG unless you've got the expensive equipment uh, with big amplifiers because the faster the brain speed, the less the amplitude. So gamma frequencies are 40 hertz, and the amplitude is very small, hard to pick up on the scalp, but you can do it. And when they first discovered that, they realized that it was a, a background hum of 40 hertz going all the time. It's always present, no matter what else is going on. And they equated it with uh, cognitive consciousness, because it's the only brain frequency that disappears under general anesthesia. Um, all other brain frequencies remain. Only gamma disappears. It's also called the binding frequency. Gamma is used by the brain as a carrier wave, kind of like a wireless radio transmission. The difference between AM and FM radio, FM is frequency modulation. You have a, a carrier wave, and then you have a modulation wave that's moving through the carrier wave, and that's how gamma works. It's a 40 hertz hum that can uh, module, that can be a carrier wave across the cortex for other brain frequencies to travel in so they can reach other regions of the cortex and communicate. It's a wireless transmission system in the brain, radio broadcast tower. So what would be the advantage of entraining to the gamma wave? Well, they call it the binding frequency because it binds all my sensory information centers together, my hearing and smell and touch and um, seeing. All those are centered in different areas of the cortex, and they all lift their brain frequency information into gamma as a carrier wave to communicate in a single spot so that all of my sensory information is synchronized so it makes sense to me as a sensory experience. When something drops and hits the floor, I can associate the physical act of hitting the floor and the sound I hear with, and, the, and what I see as all linking together. For people who have a problem with gamma production in their brain, they have significant symptoms, symptoms of schizophrenia, symptoms of autism, where my sensory information is fractured and doesn't make sense. You know, I hear, I hear something drop, I don't turn my head to look because I don't associate that with a physical event. I don't associate seeing something drop and hitting the floor with the sound that comes from that. So it's a big issue with certain kind of conditions to have gamma missing. Uh, it was, and then in the spiritual realm, you know, just recently, over a year and a half ago, or Dalai Lama did a research project at the University of Wisconsin with ten of his top monks, hooked them up to sophisticated brain monitors and put them in an fMRI machine to see what their brain was doing when they meditate. And uh, across the group, they're all producing massive amplitudes of gamma brain information. Uh, so I produced my first gamma uh, meditation CD uh, six years before that from the research I was doing in, in my center. 
so the idea that, once again, there's a waking function for gamma, there's a sleeping function for gamma, and there's an awakening meditative function for gamma. Each picks the lock of a different neural program and unlocks a different type of experience. Now, Dr. Jeff, I feel like you've done a good job, a very solid job, of introducing us to the idea of brainwave entrainment and these different brain states that can be prominent and how the recordings you've created can entrain us in these different brainwave states. You mentioned briefly the idea of primordial sounds, and you said we'd get back to that. And I know that's another component that you bring to the recordings you create. Can you briefly describe to me what you mean by primordial sounds and how you include them in your recordings? Yeah, the... um... What I refer to as primordial sounds is sounds that would have the same subconscious response in anyone who heard it, no matter what age you are, what sex you are, what language you speak, what culture you come from. More objective sounds rather than a subjective experience of a sound. So examples of that would be um, primary primordial sounds, I would consider to be womb sounds, because all of us experience that. At 16 weeks, the fetus is about as long as, twice as long as your index finger. It's a small little fetus, 16 weeks, and it's developed enough in its neural structure for all five senses to come online for the first time. But uh, the the eyes are not collecting any information because you're in the dark. And the nose and mouth are not collecting information because you're in fluid. So they're filled with amniotic fluid. But sound physically travels through water five times more efficiently than it does through air. And so the only experience we have in the womb is a sound vibrational experience. Vibration sense is separate from hearing. It's mediated through skin sensors into an area of the brainstem. And the skin sensors are sensitive from 0.3 hertz to 500 hertz. That's vibration sense to the body, carried through separate tracks in this posterior spinal cord. (coughs) Hearing is a different mechanism. So that means our largest sense organ is our skin. And that means that for the full nine months of my experience, of everybody's experience, the first nine months of your experience being alive was a sound vibrational experience floating in water. So no wonder, you know, every culture on earth in their religious ceremonies has a special place for sound. And most of them in their documents, in their sacred literatures, have in the beginning was the word of some some formation of that. In the beginning was the vibration. And then in the third trimester, when the abdominal wall is stretched to a point where light can filter through, then there was light. But I think that's the reason why sound is the most powerful tool that you can have to reach the deepest experience in the deepest regions of the unconscious mind that anyone can have because it can reach right back into the experience in the womb. And what is the experience in the womb anyway? It's like I'm, it's just me surrounded by God and love and nurturing and all my needs get met. 
You know, when was the last time you had that experience? <laughs> so you combine these sounds of the womb into your recordings? That's an example of the primordial sounds? Yes. So, but here's the key. The, there have been a couple of other tapes by uh, pediatricians uh, take, taking very sophisticated electronic stethoscopes and recording the womb environment. Um, the problem is that my experience as a fetus that's four and a half inches long, and what I heard and what I felt is very different than what someone who's six foot tall listening through stethoscope from the outside experiences or hears. And here's why. The, so so I, I took it on a task of myself as a physician and an audio engineer to as accurately as possible to scientifically reconstruct what the sound environment of the womb would be from the standpoint of the fetus. So you can pick that apart. There would be the swishy, watery sounds of the amniotic fluid against my eardrums, kind of like being you know, holding your nose and dropping down to the bottom of the swimming pool and meditating. Uh, then there would be the arterial uh, placental pulse, and it would be beating right in my belly button as a physical sensation. Uh, then there would be the respiratory sounds of my mother's diaphragm above my head, you know, above me, and mother's heartbeat as a distant kind of thudding. And then there would be the gloopy, bloopy kind of sounds of the large and small intestine that surround me on all sides. And the key factor of, so so we can reproduce all those. We can make those sounds so they sound just like they sounded when you were there. But there's a key element, and that is that there's a, that sound waves have size. Uh, C-sharp in the third octave has a sound wave that's one foot long. And an octave lower is two feet long and four feet long and eight feet long. It's a huge waveform. Sound has size. So now we've got this fetus that's five inches long, and it's got a, a small little head and a very small little ear and an eardrum that's so small you can't see it except with a microscope. And then we have a mother's heart beating out a pulse, and the size of the sound waves coming off her heart in relationship to the size of this microscopic eardrum would make the sound sound different to that eardrum. So if we were to blow the fetus up to six foot tall and blow everything up in, in the world to the, in the same larger size in relation to it, that mother's heartbeat would fill an 8 by 10 room. And what kind of sound would that heart make? It wouldn't be the lub-dub, lub-dub that you're hearing through a stethoscope. It would be this big, slowed-down, pulsing sound. And the the water sounds of the amniotic fluid would be slowed down, and those would sound remarkably like ocean waves, respiratory sound. It's like very interesting when you start to slow the sounds down by the appropriate number of octaves. All kinds of interesting sounds from nature begin to spark a recognition in your unconscious mind. Part of the reason why we're drawn to the ocean is this sound of the ocean is very close to mother's respiratory sound slowed down. So this idea of taking these sounds and reproducing the way that I heard it in the womb and then building that into a soundtrack 
and not making it dominant, having it hidden kind of in, underneath everything else, working away at my unconscious mind to pick the lock of an unconscious program I haven't had since I was in the womb, a program of I can relax, I'm safe, I'm nurtured, I'm healed, I'm surrounded by love and nurturing. That's a very powerful thing to use as a therapeutic tool. Mm-hmm to put a person into a very safe space, whether it's a healing space or a meditation space, same thing. So that's one of the primordial sounds. I'd say a secondary class of primordial sounds would be nature sounds uh, because not everybody hears the same ones. You know, ocean is for most of us, but not a Bedouin in the middle of the desert. So most of our experiences with nature have all been positive experiences because they're associated with vacations. You know, back to nature. Go to rest and recuperate. So when I was uh, doing this work with Rich Bandler and taking people's voices and recording them and playing them backwards and forwards in different speeds so that only the unconscious mind could recognize what was being said, I noticed something very curious because I was doing this primordial sound project at the same time. Um, Recordings of a person speaking sentences, if you started to speed these recordings up, and speed them up by uh, octaves, in other words, you double the speed, and then you double that speed, and then you double that speed, that's an octave, or you slow it down by half, or slow that down by half. By half. Human speech patterns speed it up by about three octaves start to sound like birds chirping. And speed it up at seven or eight octaves start to sound like crickets. And speed it up by 12 to 16 octaves sounds like dolphin chirps. And this was kind of blowing my mind. I'm thinking, wait a second, what if I take nature sounds and start to play around with them? You know, let's take cricket sounds and slow them down. They sound like birds. And birds slow down sound like dolphins, and dolphins slow down, sound like people singing. So it's kind of like, wow, no wonder we can't talk with the dolphins. We're talking at the wrong speed. You know, we need to slow their voices down 16 octaves and speed ours up by 16 octaves, and now we can communicate. Um, So taking womb sounds and nature sounds that are slowed down in a way that only my unconscious mind can be affected by it, uh, and then layering on top of that uh, nature sounds in a speed that we can recognize, but never at the right speed, always at least slowed down by some amount to slow you down, which led me to another discovery that I um, copyrighted that was called uh, acoustic pacing. So since my body clocks time themselves to the world, if the whole world slowed down, then my, all my body clocks would slow down with it. So that's the power of psychoacoustic 3D recording techniques. If I take these special microphones and I go out into nature and take these nature sound recordings, and then I come back and I put headphones on and listen to them, I hear all of the normal three-dimensional cues of the real three-dimensional space. I'll hear water down by my feet and birds and trees around me and wind blowing through my head and things like that. It's pretty amazing. But my physical body has a visceral, uncontrollable response to this. My body is completely fooled and thinks that this is for real. 
and responds accordingly. Um, I do a demo, uh, 3D recording demo in one of my classes, 60 seconds long. Person sits down, puts the microphones on. I have the rest of the people walk in a circle around them talking, jingle some keys around their head in a circle, give them a fake haircut, slam a door behind them, and then put a grocery bag over their head, a brown paper bag over their head, and then remove it. And then we take the microphones off and put the headphones on and have them close their eyes and listen to the same recording from the same position. And their physical body fills in the missing details because it's expecting that it's real. When the door slams, you feel a vibration through your body and, a, and an air pressure change, which is not there. Uh, when you put the paper bag over a person's head, you feel claustrophobic. Some people could smell the bag. It's very interesting phenomenon. So if we've got this sound, these sounds that are slowed down so the only un unconscious mind can recognize them, we're pushing survival buttons, buttons in the primary functioning systems of the body that have to respond, that respond automatically without thinking about it. And we can use that as a scientific clinical tool to push an emotional response of healing, peace, serenity, relaxation, safety, just the kind of things that help a person to heal, all built into a soundtrack in a way that you can't hear it. Dr. Jeff, I'm sorry to cut you off here, but we are coming to a conclusion of our Insights at the Edge program, and I want to thank you so much for giving us some of the background on how you create your very successful series of audio recordings distributed through Sounds True. Dr. Jeff has created this series called Brainwave Suite, as well as the program The Alpha Relaxation System, The Delta Sleep System, and The Gamma Meditation System. Dr. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us on Insights at the Edge. Always my pleasure. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.